Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Uh, We're continuing our, our, our series, His Story. Uh, lessons from the Old Testament. As you know, we started out with Adam and Eve, and we're just kind of going through biblical history here, and we're in the life of Abraham. And I'm talking today about doubt. Doubt, the journey to a better faith. John Ortberg writes, as long as you have faith, you're going to have doubts. I sometimes use the following illustration when I'm speaking. I tell the audience that I have a $20 bill in my hand, and I ask for a volunteer who believes me. He's got his hand closed. Usually only a few hands go up. Then I tell the volunteer I'm about to destroy his or her faith. I open my hand and I show them the $20 bill. The reason I say I'm destroying his or her faith is that now they know that I hold the bill. He or she sees the bill and doesn't need faith anymore. Faith is required only when we have doubts, some level of question, when we do not know for sure. Once knowledge comes, once you see it, faith is no more. Sometimes a person is tempted to think, I can't become a Christian because I still have doubts. I'm still not sure. But as long as doubt exists, as long as a person is still uncertain, that's the only time faith is needed. When the doubts are gone, the person doesn't need faith anymore. Knowledge has come. The point is doubt is a part of our journey. I tell the audience that this is exactly the point Paul, the apostle, was making in his first letter to the church at Corinth. Now we see, that's a knowing word, now we see but a poor reflection. We have confusion, misunderstanding, doubts, and questions. Then, in the future, when we're with Jesus, we shall see face to face. We don't see face to face yet. Now I know in part, in other words, now I have questions and doubts, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. Doubt is a pretty normal part of our spiritual journeys. Now, some of us come from church backgrounds or churches where nothing can be questioned. And I kind of come from one of those environments. Doubt is viewed almost as always sinful. Now, I think doubt can be sinful, but I don't think it in and of itself is But sometimes we come from churches where people don't want you to question anything. God cannot be questioned. You can't question anything about the Bible or about what it means. Faith is then sort of just a leap in the dark that you make and are asked to take without reservation. Just believe. And yet your questions aren't really answered. And so it's hard to believe. Because there is such a thing as a reasoned faith. Now personally, I think those church cultures are somewhat foolish and dangerous. And I I don't think they're appreciating what happens in our spiritual formation. Doubt is part of the journey. Henry Drummond from Listening to the Giants writes about this. He says, we're born questioners. Look at the wonderment of a little child in its eyes before it can speak. The child's great word when it begins to speak is, well, I think he forgot mama and papa, but why? Every child is full of every kind of question about every kind of thing that moves, shines, changes in the little world in which it lives. That is the incipient doubt in the nature of man. 
Respect doubt for its origin. It's part of who we are. It's an inevitable thing. It's not a thing to be crushed. It's a part of man as God made him. Doubt is the prelude to knowledge. Rene Descartes, the great philosopher, says, if you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt as far as possible all things. Now, I don't know that he was a Christian in any way, but, but I like what he's saying, is we put everything to the test. If I were to revisit, I'm almost embarrassed about my college and seminary experience because I pretty much made every prof I had prove everything they said. Why? Because I was a difficult student? Maybe. But mostly because that's the way I learn. I learn through debate. I want to question things. I want them proven to me. Doubt is all over the pages of Scripture. Abraham, the father of faith, in my opinion, was not a great example of faith. He's full of doubt. The Psalms are full of it as the psalmist questioned God. God, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Look at the world you've created. It's all upside down. The wrong people are getting rewarded. The right people suffer. It's full of that. The Gospels are full of the disciples struggling to understand Jesus and to believe what he's saying, even about his very nature. Peter gets out of the ship in the middle of the night. He sees Jesus walking on the water, and what does he do? He starts walking on water. He wants to believe, and then he doubts. He struggles. He starts to sink. The 12 post-resurrection struggled with what had happened, even though Jesus had predicted it. One of the disciples is particularly known only for his doubt, and that's Thomas. And Thomas might have been the most rational of all of them. But it was a part of the journey to believing and to seeing Jesus. Hard questions need to be addressed. We are not called to swallow our brains to follow God. We wrestle with doubt along the path of discovery and knowledge and eventually commitment to the point where we would give our lives to Jesus and for Jesus. The key is, I think, to make sure doubt isn't sinful, the key is to progress in our faith and in our journey. Doubt sort of lives between real unbelief, like settled unbelief, like I'm not going to believe what the Bible says, and Absolute faith in God. It sort of lives between the two. Absolute unbelief as a settled position. Absolute faith and commitment as a settled position. Doubt is like a fork in the road of our spiritual journeys between those two destinations. So we can either move from doubt to settled unbelief, or we can move from doubt to greater faith in God, in some new understanding of his work in our lives, a place of greater trust and confidence. That's where doubt sort of functions in our journey. We're studying his story. We're in the life of Abraham. And today we find ourselves in the middle of Abraham's most famous struggle to believe God. Now I want you to turn to that story. We're going to read it together. It's in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16 is on page 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, just grab one from the pew near you. And uh, if you look on page 10 in the Old Testament, we're going to have this story, which actually occupies... Much of the spiritual journey of Abraham in the Old Testament is about this subject. And here we get to sort of the crux of the issue. Genesis chapter 16, page 10. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, 
She becomes Sarah, Abraham becomes Abraham, or Abram becomes Abraham. We'll talk about that at the end of the sermon. But this is before God changed their names, just a little bit, a little nuanced. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. I don't love the word wife there because I don't think that really captures the legal situation. I would view her as a servant who's being given more as a concubine than a real wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai went to Abram, may the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. She's headed back to Egypt, basically. This is the road to Egypt. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants, so they will, know, they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, you will bear a son, and you will call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Ishmael means God hears. He will be a wild donkey of a man. I don't think this is negative, by the way. This sounds like a curse. It's not. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. He was going to be a nomad, basically. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, have I, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Beer, a Hyroid. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. I just want to look at three simple points from this passage and from the next chapter, which we're going to reference. First, for Abraham and us, sometimes even the simplest and clearest words from God are hard to believe. God has just appeared to Abraham in a vision. I want you to think about that. The last chapter, right before this, and there probably isn't a lot of time lapsed between them, you have a vision. Some say the whole of chapter 15 is a vision. Some would say part of it's a vision, part of it are actual events that took place in real time, not just in the vision. But either way, God has just appeared to Abraham in a vision. He has originally been told that he's going to become a great nation. That goes back to chapter 12 as Abraham comes into the promised land. So a number of years ago, maybe about 10 years before, Abraham has been told he's going to become a great nation. Now if God tells you you're going to be a nation, you would assume there's some physical progeny. So it's been about a decade he and Sarah have no children since that promise. So Abraham is beginning to rationalize and we saw this in the last chapter, that he's going to become a nation 
legally through a guy named Eliezer, who was sort of his right-hand man, sort of the guy who, who took care of all of his affairs. And Abraham's a wealthy guy. He has over 300 sort of trained guys in his clan, trained for the military, if you will, because they were just in a battle a couple of chapters ago. So his clan is probably, possibly up to a couple thousand people. That, that are a part of this Abraham clan that is in this part of Canaan at the time. So Abraham is rationalizing that he's been become a nation through Eliezer, who's taking care of all of his affairs, but not physically through Sarah, his wife, because they've been together for a long, long time, many decades, and it's clear that she's not getting pregnant. So God cleared the air. This is what God said in the last chapter that we spoke on Last week, here's Genesis 15, 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him. So this is right after he's saying, I guess I'm gonna be a nation through Eleazar. This is what God said. This man, Eleazar, will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Okay, could God make it any clearer? I don't think God could make it any clearer and still keep this PG-13. I mean, he couldn't make it clearer. You're gonna have a child, it's gonna be through your body, that's what's gonna happen. Now, any rational human being would assume that the promise, since you're married, is going to be fulfilled through your wife. That would be the normal way you would interpret that promise. You're gonna have an heir, it's gonna be from your own body. You're a married guy, you've got one wife, it's gotta be her. Abraham evidently tells Sarah of God's promise. He goes back and says, I had this vision and God couldn't have made it clearer. I'm having a baby. After decades of marriage, Sarah knew that she seemed to be infertile. Now, I mean, there are no, you know, this is a pre-scientific era there are no medical records saying that she can't have a baby, but her life experience is telling her that. If you go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the great chapter about heroes of faith, it talks about Sarah, and it describes her as beyond the proper time of life. Now, even though people lived longer back then, the reality is that would seem to indicate that she's postmenopausal. So she's thinking, I can't have a baby. So God makes this incredible promise to Abraham, you're going to have a child, it's going to be through your own body, when he tells his wife she has no positive reaction to this monumental promise. Doesn't even register. And any amount of faith that it inspired in Abraham was gone in an instant because she immediately basically dismisses it. We're not that different. Sometimes the simplest, plainest words from God trip us up. If something is hard to believe, it doesn't matter who says it. It doesn't matter if it's in God's word. In fact, we're living in a time where this is so common. Our doubt and faith filter is ruthless, even to the simple, plain words of God, which leads to our next point. For Abraham and us, God wants to be the hero of the story. God had a miracle in mind here. He's thinking, I'm going to take Sarah who is postmenopausal, and I'm gonna take Abraham, who's thinking I'm not gonna fulfill my original promise, and I'm gonna give them a baby. God has got this miracle in mind, but we often don't let him. God wants to create faith in us. He wants to create trust in us, trust that we will trust his promises and commit to them. He wants to create sort of commitment in our lives that come from this faith and trust. He has set up this miracle situation for Abraham and Sarah. 
I mean, the headlight in the Canaanite Chronicle would have read, miracle baby born to aging couple after a God visit. News at 11. There was going to be a miracle. But Abraham and Sarah doubted the simplest word, the simplest meaning, the simplest way to hear what God had said. They couldn't imagine a baby would come from them. Now I want you to think about this. Abraham has just experienced a miracle, all right? I want you to just have a little perspective about what's going on in their doubt. Abraham has just been sort of put to sleep by God in chapter 15. He's asleep, he's got this vision going on, all kinds of things are happening there. Promises are made to him about the child that's gonna come through him. Promises are, gonna be, are made about a, the future of Israel, about actual slavery in Egypt, about their restoration, the wealth they'll take from Egypt. All that stuff is in chapter 15. God has promised all of that. Abraham has seen God in a vision. He has basically heard an audible voice in his sleep or in this vision, miracles have clearly not been too big for God, and yet right away, they're doubting. Sarah is immediately deconstructing God's word, and that's what she's doing. I love it. I mean, I don't love it, but it's a good illustration of it. She's thinking, well, it really can't be that simple, because we've been together for all this time, and clearly we're not going to get pregnant, but there's always a way. Sarah had a servant girl named Hagar. Now, she had likely gotten Hagar in the palace of Egypt as a gift years before, if you remember when they went to Egypt. A servant, I mean, I might as well just use the word, Hagar was a slave. She was property. It was a harsh reality in the ancient world and sadly still exists. She was a slave. And in the legal culture of the ancient world, if uh, any child that she had, that Hagar had, would also be the property of her owner or mistress, in this case, Sarah. So if Hagar has children, they are legally Sarah's children. So if Sarah has children by Abraham sleeping with Hagar, her slave girl, they will be Sarah's legal children. That's the way the law worked back then. So Sarah, in her doubt, suggests what is obvious to her. And Abraham, in his doubt, doesn't fight it. God made a promise. You're going to have a baby, physically, Abraham. Sarah and Abraham are thinking, well, we believe God, kind of. I mean, we did see this in a vision. It was a miracle. But I don't believe God enough to think that I'm going to have a baby, Sarah. So, oh, let me think if I can solve this for God. Because he doesn't seem capable. Okay, legally, Hagar's body is my body because I own her. So Hagar's baby would be my baby. So if you sleep with Hagar and have a baby, that's going to be our baby. It's going to be my baby. That must be what God has intended here. So she says to her husband, you have my permission to visit her tent tonight and every night until she conceives. We're going to help God out. We're going to help God keep his word. But remember, God wants to be the hero of the story. God wants to give them a miracle. 
God wants to put them in a position where there is no solution except God, which is what God wants to do for us many times in our lives. He wants to put us in a situation where there is really no solution except him, and what do we do? We try to figure out how we can solve a problem for him, and then at the end of the day, we're not sure if he showed up or if we just showed up and solved this problem. That's what they're trying to do. But the plan backfired. Hagar got pregnant as planned, but her pregnancy did what a pregnancy is going to do in that situation. This is a big clan. There could be 1,500, a couple thousand people in this whole clan. And the, the leader of the clan, the patriarch, is Abraham. And now she's having Abraham's baby. So as soon as she's pregnant, and Abraham's been visiting her tent every night, as soon as she's pregnant, of course, she's competing with Abraham's wife. She's competing with Sarah. And she despised Sarah. It's like, hey, I'm the one who's carrying Abraham's baby. You're not. And Sarah blamed her husband, and he, in a pretty significant pickle, gave her full authority to act however she wanted. And Sarah basically was just abusive to her slave girl and drove her out of the camp, out of the clan. And the next time we find her, we find her on a road back to Egypt, afraid and without a place to live. She fled, she's on her way to Egypt, an angel visits her, she is told to return. Many promises and prophecies are made about her baby to her. She returns, gives Abraham and Sarah a baby boy. The boy was to be named Ishmael, which means God hears. And God hears was not about God hearing Abraham and Sarah. It's about God hearing Hagar in her distress, which we'll talk about when we get to the apps. All of these complicated and twisted relationships happen because two people couldn't believe God, his simplest and clearest instructions. God wants to be the hero of the story. He wants to put them in a situation where he's the only solution and they just can't let him be there. God wants to be the hero, but they never gave him a chance. They manipulated the outcome and God wasn't having it because God again wants to fulfill his promises in our lives. He wants us to learn to believe him and trust him. Which leads to the third point. For Abraham and us, God persists in building faith in his word. God wasn't done with this. God wasn't letting this go. Abraham's journey continued. We're not going to read chapter 17, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about what goes on in chapter 17. So Ishmael, this son that they kind of helped God fulfill his promise with, Ishmael is growing up in the house of Abraham. And it looks like he's going to be the next leader of the clan. He's growing into his young teens. He's 13, and Abraham loves this kid. Not sure what Sarah thought of him. I'm sure this was hard for her. But Abraham loved this young man. And God appeared to Abraham again. Now you've got a 13 or 14 year lapse between the last time God appeared to Abraham and told him he was going to have a child through his own body before they had Ishmael. So it's been about 13 years. Ishmael is now 13. So you've got a 13 or 14 year lapse. And in that appearance, he establishes what we call the Abrahamic covenant. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about it, but it basically it was circumcision of males 
as a sign that you're a part of God's people. So God is going to make Abraham into a nation, and the sign of that nation, the symbol of that nation would be your young boys at eight days of age will be circumcised. So God talks about that in this vision to Abraham in the next chapter. Circumcision would be the custom that would identify them as Israelites, as Jewish. About that time, he reaffirms by renaming them what's going to happen to Abraham and Sarah. Again, he says, Abram, I'm going to call you Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Sarai, I'm going to put a little slant, a little change to your name. It's going to be Sarah, which means princess, which means you're going to be a mother of nations. You're going to give birth to nations. So he tweaks their names a little bit. And then God decided, okay, because you two seem to have a hearing problem, I'm going to make my promise idiot-proof. That's in the Hebrew. Sarah will be the mother of nations. Sarah will have a baby, Abram. Okay, Not you will have a baby, and even though you should have assumed it'd be through your wife, you did the whole Hagar experiment. Sarah. Can I say it any simpler, God said. Sarah is going to have a son. And Abraham responds with three not-so-good reactions when God is having a conversation like that with you. One, he laughed at God. Now, maybe he laughed with God. He laughed. And he questions God again. And he references their age. He says, am I going to have a baby at 100 and Sarah at 90? Really? No. If you read commentators, I'm going to tell you they will give Abraham a break here. They will. They say, Abraham laughed in wonder. And he said, oh, am I going to have a baby at 100 and Sarah at 90? He laughed at God in wonder. They were laughing together. I'm not buying it at all. And I'll tell you why. Because he doubles down on the fruits of his first doubts. And he says this to God. Genesis 17, 18. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. All right? Oh, that Ishmael, this 13-year-old that we kind of created our own way, oh, that he might live before you. In other words, oh, that he could be the son of promise. I love my boy. I love my boy. Can it just be Ishmael? Just accept our plan. It was good enough. Just let it go, God. I'll do the whole minor surgical procedure thing, whatever, even though I'm not a big fan of it. I'll do it. But let Ishmael be the one. But God wanted Abraham and Sarah to grow in their faith. And he kept coming back to the same promise about the same issue that their hard heads were not able to handle for a couple of decades now. And that is, you're going to become a nation. It's going to be through you physically, Abraham. You're going to have a baby. And now I guess I have to say, it's going to be through your wife, Sarah. I'm not letting go of this. Eventually, you're going to believe me. And God just kept coming back to the same issue over and over and over for a couple of decades until he proved himself to them. And by now, it obviously was going to be a miracle, and God keeps narrowing the language until they couldn't possibly misunderstand him. I am the solution, God is saying. I alone, and I'm going to fulfill my promise. 
Just a couple of apps as we close here. Doubt, the journey to a better faith. First, what clear word from God do I doubt? Doubt is a real part of our journeys. Now, some of you might say, well, I don't think I have any doubts. Well, what do you struggle with that's in God's word? Those, those are your doubts. Abraham struggled to believe God's word, and he was getting audible voices and visions. Now, I don't get audible voices and visions, um, but I do have the Bible. Abraham had no Old Testament. Abraham was, had this, basically this word from God without any scriptures. It was a different era as it relates to progressive revelation. He didn't know anything compared to what you know today about your Bible and so on. He's getting to know God sort of on a personal level through audible voices and visions. But I would agree, I would think, and you would agree, those are miraculous situations. I mean, that's, a, that's pretty exciting if you're Abraham. You know, I, I'm... You and I might be willing to set our Bibles aside if we got audible voices and visions from God the way Abraham did. But granted, you only got them every, very periodically. This wasn't going on every day, hence some of the doubts. But he did get audible voices and visions and still had a problem believing God. And human nature is amazingly skeptical. Faith is not easy. And we're living in a time where faith is particularly not easy because God's word is under massive attack both outside the camp and inside the camp. I'm not worried about what the world says about God's word. I'm starting to get worried about what Christians say about God's word. I'm worried about what people standing in places like this say about God's word. That's what scares me about the future of Christianity. I couldn't care less what the world says. I want to understand it. And I want to be able to explain it so we know how to navigate the world around us. But what scares me is what college and seminary professors now believe about God's word. That's what's scary. But God wants us to follow. Eventually, without question, to get through our doubts and be willing to go and do whatever he tells us to do. Got an illustration here. It's a golfing illustration. I don't golf. I'm awful at it, which is probably one reason I don't do it. But for those of you who golf, most golfers keep their driver in a bag with the rest of their clubs. So when Bill Offer, the outside services supervisor at Boulder Point Golf Club, was told that an errant driver was out of place, that's what he expected to see. Instead, Offer was treated to the rare sight of an actual human driver behind the wheel of an Amazon delivery truck that got stuck in a tunnel meant for golf carts. So a guy drives onto a golf course to deliver a package, and he ends up ramming into one of those little tunnels meant only for golf carts and getting his van stuck there. You, you can't make this up. Offer said, somehow he got inside the golf course, and obviously he was not familiar with it. He said his GPS led him there. It's too funny, it really is. A tow truck was required to remove the delivery truck from the smaller tunnel in which it was so tightly wedged. Offer quipped, he was between a rock and a hard place. Ha ha. Eventually, an Amazon supervisor arrived with another vehicle to transport the driver and his packages elsewhere. The driver was said to be embarrassed, but otherwise fine. The novelty of the site prompted jokes on social media. I'm gonna guess it's gonna be a rough few weeks in the break room for this guy. But my point is this. He was so committed to following his GPS that he was going to take it in those directions wherever it told him to go. You know what? That's what God wants from you and me. He is our GPS. 
And his word may not make sense to us at times, but we are to follow it no matter what and no matter what jams it creates for us. Eventually, as we work through our doubts, he gets us to this point of committed and settled faith so that as our GPS, we will do whatever it takes to follow him even when it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Now, that's a good illustration of a bad situation, but God kind of wants the same as our GPS. What clear word from God do I doubt? What, we, what do you struggle with that he has said very clearly? Second, where does God want to be the hero on my journey? Spiritual journeys are interesting. And in Abraham and Sarah's lives, he, he's wanting to put them in a situation where he alone is their solution. They're going to have this baby. And they keep just botching the process for literally, you know, numbers of years. This, this takes a couple of decades before they finally get this all figured out. God is always teaching us something, whether we recognize it or not. We're always learning multiple things. But often the same lessons take years or even decades, sometimes a lifetime, to get right. But God keeps chipping away at us. God is persistent. He was with Abraham. Just because Abraham doubted God in this area didn't mean God was going to let it go. No, he just kept revisiting the same thing. That doubt lasted decades. Ishmael was Abraham's plan, Sarah's plan. But God just kept persisting. And he does the same thing with us. Often in our lives, we'll be dealing with the same issues over and over and over, sometimes for a long time, sometimes for a lifetime. And God is going to keep persisting until he gets you through it. If you were God, how would you answer that question? How has God wanted to be the hero on your spiritual journey? How has God wanted to build faith in you, but it's just been hard for you to trust God in that area? Is it an intellectual struggle about faith? Is it recovering from a life experience, pain and disappointment that God allowed? You're angry with him? Or is it victory over a long time struggle? God wants to be the hero on our journeys. And finally, what does God think of the situations my doubts create? Now, I want to go down the Hagar story just a little bit here. The meta-narrative is obviously the great narrative. The big story here is getting to Sarah and getting to Isaac, who is going to be this baby that God has ultimately promised. But Harris, Hagar's story is, is explained uh, in, in some detail here. She's a fascinating study. She is a casualty of Abraham and Sarah's doubts. I mean, she's a slave girl. She's a pretty innocent victim here. She has no rights. She can't say no. She is completely innocent. She is a casualty of Abraham and Sarah's doubts, and then as a result of the pregnancy, she's a casualty of Sarah's sort of abusive, sinful nature. She's driven from the clan. She bears a child that complicates everything. And you might be thinking, well, the plan is that God would get to Isaac, so maybe God should just get rid of her. Because the, the big narrative is fulfilling his promise. Maybe God should just get rid of Hagar and get rid of Ishmael and all evidence of the doubt and let her be on the road. Let her go back to Egypt. Don't worry about her future. Yeah, but God's not like that with anybody. Hagar is made in the image of God. She hasn't done this. God loves Hagar. She's an innocent person in this. 
She's not necessarily a follower of the true God. Maybe she is because she's part of Abraham's clan. That probably would be the culture. But she's innocent here. Anne Graham Lutz, Billy Graham's daughter, wrote a book about the Hagar story. And the whole book is based on this concept. And it's called Wounded by God's People. Abraham and Sarah are God's people. Hagar is just taking this abuse because of their doubts. But she's got a life. She matters. And so God shows up for her. And as God meets her on this road back to Egypt, meets her, the angel of the Lord meets her, he says, you're going to name this child, you're going to have this child, and he's going to become a nation as well. And I don't know about the whole, you're going to, he's going to become a wild donkey of a man, it's probably a compliment, I would have a hard time taking it that way, I think it's good. I think it's describing his nomadic lifestyle, nomadic lifestyle of the peoples that were the Ishmaelites to the east of Israel. But Ishmael's going to be named Ishmael because it means God hears God heard you weeping on the side of the road and you didn't do this, Hagar, and we know it. God knows it. And the place was named the well of the living one who sees me. I'm going to name my baby Ishmael. God heard me. And because God showed up and appeared to me, the well of the living one who sees me. I'm naming this place, this well, this oasis about the fact that God, who may or may not have been her God, saw her and cared. The reason I bring that up is this. A lot of us live a lot of our lives as Hagar, not as Abraham and Sarah. A lot of us live a lot of our lives as Ishmael. Because a lot of life is lived because of choices that have been made many times by others, that affect our existence in significant ways. We get off track, maybe because of our own choices or maybe because of the choices of others. Somebody else puts us off track. And I don't love the word off track because I don't believe God sees it that way. God doesn't see our lives as on track or off track. God is always there. It's all part of the journey. And he's revealing himself along the way and he wants to to all people, regardless of where they are regardless of how they got there. Hagar got there innocently, and God was there loving her. Some of us get in situations in life where we're thinking, man, I don't know that God cares about me. Kind of like Hagar on the side of the road. Oh, he does. What does God think of the situations my doubt creates? He's present, and he cares. God, we're so grateful for your word, and we're so grateful for your promises. We recognize that It's hard for us to believe. In many ways, we've given our lives to you. We've trusted in you. We believe that you are the reason we'll be in heaven someday because of what you've done through your son, Jesus, on the cross. And yet, as much as we believe that and our eternal destiny is in your hands and we're confident of it, we look at the word of God, we look at what you say, we look at the world around us, and often we find ourselves struggling to believe other things that you've said. And I pray that you would help us. Help us with our doubts as the disciple prayed, Lord, help us with our unbelief. And I just pray that you would help us to to use our doubts to get to a point of settled faith, not a point of perpetual unbelief. I pray that you would be with each one of us as you are in our journeys, guiding us towards a greater level of commitment to you. 
each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.